ask you uh, a question, and based upon your response, you can stand or not stand. So uh, my, uh, my question for you is this. Uh, I want you to stand up if you'd be willing to accept an offer from me for an adventure that I promise you will be fun, may look dangerous, but is 100% safe and very exciting. If you'd be willing to accept that offer from me for that adventure, please stand. Okay, I know. Hey, some of you are like, man, I don't know you at all. I ain't standing for... All right, all right, good. Now, keep standing if you would accept the same offer, but this time the danger is real and I cannot promise your safety. I'm not telling you for sure. You're gonna, I just can't. It's the danger's real. I can't promise. Okay, all right, all right. There's more of you standing in this service than last, but... I want you to keep standing if you would accept the offer, knowing it will be dangerous but exciting, hard but fun, and that you will probably die at some point during the adventure. <laughs> this tells me a lot about your personalities right now. I know a lot of... All right, perfect. Please have a seat. Uh, let me ask this question, though. Would... Some of you are like... The only adventure worth taking is one where death is imminent. Um, would anything change if I told you that there was going to be a huge reward at the end? You're like, if I'm dead, what's that going to do me? Well, maybe. Look, I think that uh, all of us love adventure. At, at a minimum... We love the idea of an adventure. We, we love adventure when the outcome is fairly well established, right? Like, uh, it's probably going to go well, it's going to be fun, uh, exciting. Like, we're, we're all about kind of that kind of an adventure. But have you ever had someone come to you and ask you this question? Where they come and they say, I'm going to ask you to do something, but before I give you any details, I need you to say yes. Has anybody ever done that to you before? I'm going to ask you to do something, but before I give you any details, I need you to say yes. You're like, I already know you're going to ask me to help you move next week. <laughs> like, that's usually what that question looks like, all right? Now, I, I want to, if, if someone were to come to you and say, I'm going to ask you to do something, but I'm not going to give you any details until you say yes, what would it take for you to actually say yes? Yes, I want you to go ahead and discuss that with your neighbor right now. What would it take for you in that scenario for you to actually say yes? They want you to do something, but they won't give you any details until you say, what would it take? Let's see what it would take Princess Jasmine.
I can show you the world, shining, shimmering, splendid. Tell me, princess, now when did you let, last, last, let your heart decide a whole new world. Lin-Manuel Miranda, you better watch yourself, Torrance Cummins. Hey, so. <laughs> now you know why I don't lead worship. Uh, I was thinking about that question. What would it take for me to say yes to an invitation to an adventure, but where I wouldn't know what the outcome was going to be or what the adventure actually was going to look like? And I, I kind of figured out it was three things that would, it, it would require. Uh, and uh, Aladdin, my man Aladdin, just showed all three of those. The first thing that it would actually take is somebody would have to do something to prove that they were worth trusting. I'd want to see that you could actually like back up whatever it was, like that, that you were actually trustworthy. And I'd want to see something, right? So like Aladdin, he gets off the balcony and jumps backwards. And she's like, what just happened? And then he rises up on the magic carpet. The second thing that it would take for me to say yes to something like that is I would actually have to believe that you really had my best interest in mind. That when you're calling me out onto this adventure, uh, not only were you trustworthy, but you had my best interest in mind. And the last thing is I would still need to be invited to take a risk. He still had to lean forward and say, will you trust me? You see, when we get called into an adventure... I think that for every single one of us, we need those three things. Whoever it is that's calling us into it, I, I got to be able to trust them. And I'm not going to trust them unless I've actually seen that they're good on their word. And, and not only am I going to have to trust them, but I'm going to have to believe that they have my best interest in mind. And I'm still going to need an invitation. Now, I want our church to be filled with people who fall for adventure. We're in our falling series, right, where we're talking about all the different things that we fall for. We, we all fall for things that are beautiful, things that are attractive. I want our church to be a church filled with people who fall for adventure. Now, I'm not talking about like Instagram cool kinds of adventure. Like those are great, all right? You go on a cool trip someplace, you take the picture, you post it on Instagram, but it's like, ooh, cool adventure. I'm talking about the kind of adventure that actually changes the world. That's the kind of church that I'm praying God will allow us to be. Now, uh, one of our values is we create the future, which I get sounds a little bit arrogant at first. Oh, you create the future, do you? Well, it's actually uh, a calling that God gave to humanity when he first created us. Uh, when he created Adam and Eve, he gave them what we call the cultural mandate. I've talked about this before. Uh, he says, I want you guys to fill the earth and to subdue it. Basically, that means to uh, have babies and spread out and take the raw elements that God created and put into the world and then partner with him in taking those things to create society where creation and humanity can flourish. That's called the cultural mandate. Okay, That is how 
we create the future. Christians are supposed to be at the forefront because we understand that that mandate actually comes from God himself and that God is partnering with us to see it happen. It gives us a trajectory of the type of society and future we're supposed to create. One that actually helps creation and humanity flourish, not one that is all about what we can get from it. And so when we say we create the future, as a church, what we're talking about is we do this by unleashing new gatherings of Christians in culture-creating cities who use their vocation to change the world. We want to be a church that creates the future. Now, we've done this as a church. I mean, that's what TLC is attempting to do. We don't think we've arrived. We don't think that we're crushing it. We don't even think that we're better than other churches. We actually think that this is something that all churches are supposed to be about. But we especially want to take on this particular value and embody it. Where we're talking about how you integrate your following of Jesus with the vocation that he's called you to. And we go out and do whatever God's called us to do for his glory so that humanity can flourish. That's what we want to be about. Now... Uh, this particular church was planted with that in mind, and we think we're not supposed to do it just for ourselves. We're actually supposed to plant other churches. We think that that's one of the greatest ways to see the future created. And so one of the things that we believe God's called us to do is that by year five, we want to plant our first church. I don't know exactly where it's going to be. We know God's calling us to do that in culture-creating cities. It's just the DNA that he's wired into us. But that is something that we want to be passionate about. But that requires a church filled with people who are falling for adventure. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. If you need a Bible, uh, we've got some folks who can walk them down for you. Just raise your hand and you can follow along. If you're not sure where Luke is... Uh, you can always turn to the front of your Bible, and there is a table of contents, and it'll give you the page number. Luke chapter 5, we're going to start reading in verse 1. This is, uh, we're going to read two stories of when Jesus actually calls some of the first disciples to start following him. Jesus is about to call them into a life of adventure. Start reading with me in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, uh, that's uh, another word for the Lake of Galilee or the Sea of Galilee. It's in the northern part of Israel, and uh, it's where Jesus grew up and where he did most of his ministry in the three years that he ministered on earth before he was crucified. So we think at this time, Jesus is probably about 30 years old. He's starting, uh, he has started his ministry, and uh, he's teaching now. So we keep reading. The people were crowding around him. And listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. In other words, Jesus is teaching. So many people are crowding in that Jesus is like getting backed up to the edge of the sea. And as he's talking, he realizes there's so many folks, he can't even get like his message above their heads to all the crowd. So he's like, yo, I'm going to get out on the water and therefore my voice is going to carry on the water and I'm going to be able to talk to everybody. I've been in this area. I had the privilege of going to Israel uh, this past year and I've been there and there's mountains that kind of rise up behind. And so it really kind of helps when he's speaking as it carries on the water with the uh, big hills behind him for folks to be able to hear. So he uh, jumps in Simon's boat. 
So we're going to learn about Simon uh, actually winds up with a couple different names. Uh, Simon is the name that his parents gave him. Uh, Jesus is eventually uh, going to uh, name Simon Peter. And so then in a lot of the Bible, he gets called Simon Peter. And eventually, kind of near the end uh, of the New Testament, he's just being called Peter. So if you've ever heard of the dude named Peter, he's one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, that's him. Okay, So I'm going to call him Simon Peter kind of from here on out. And uh, Simon Peter is uh, a fisherman. He owns one of the boats. So he gets into the boat belonging to Simon and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. These are, those are the dudes in the other boat. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Flip on down just a little bit further in verse 27 and 28. This is the calling of a guy named Levi, uh, who is also later known to us as Matthew. Levi, Matthew, same person. He's the guy who writes the gospel of Matthew. It says in verse 27, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. I think that there's three things that Jesus wants us to understand about the call to adventure from these two stories. The first thing is simply this. The call to adventure must be accepted without strings attached. The second is the call to adventure always costs something. And the third is the call to adventure will always be worth it. Let's start with the first one. Jump back with me to verse 4, if you will. It says, when he had finished speaking, Jesus... He said to Simon Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, uh, Jesus is not a fisherman, okay? You ever been fishing with somebody who doesn't really know how to fish? All right, they're getting their lines tangled. Like they don't know how to tie the lure on. They go to cast and the lure goes flying, and, but it's not actually attached. Or they don't know how to take a fish off the line. They're like, eh, can you help me? Uh, all right, so Jesus, I'm not saying Jesus was like that, okay? But he's not a fisherman. Peter is a fisherman. In fact, Peter grew up in it. This is the family business. Most likely it's been generations of people in Peter's family have been fishing. Peter knows how to fish. And Jesus says to him, hey, Peter, put out into the deep waters. That's not where you actually would generally catch the fish. It would have been more in the medium to shallow waters. Not only that, but it's during the middle of the day. They've been fishing all night. Why? Because they're idiots? No, because that's when you catch fish at night. They wouldn't have caught them in the middle of the day. Not only that, but they've been fishing all night. They've tried. This spot is dead. The fish aren't there right now. And yet Jesus says to him, hey, I want you to put out into the deep water, drop your nets. And Peter says to him, he says, Jesus, master, we've worked hard all night. He says, we've. 
we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. In fact, they've been sitting on the side of the shore cleaning their nets. What are they cleaning? They didn't catch any fish. They're cleaning seaweed out of their nets. And they finally got it done after a long night of fishing where they didn't get anything. And now Jesus has already hijacked his boat for a little while. Now Jesus is like, hey, put out into the deep, send out the nets into deep water. Oh, great. Now my nets are going to get dirty again. I'm definitely not catching anything in the middle of the day in the deep water. But because you have, uh, because you say so, I will let down the nets. You see, the call in this moment is directly to Peter. Peter, I want you to do this. And even though they had been doing it, Peter recognizes the individual call that Jesus is placing. He's like, all right, I'll do it. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to Peter. Yeah, he's probably going to be the laughing stock of all of his friends. Right? We already know James and John are hanging out on the other boat. They're, they're not actually even out in the water. They're still cleaning the nets. And like, oh, man, poor Peter. Where is he going? Oh, my goodness, he's putting a net in. Oh, great. We're going to have to help him clean this one, too. You see, when Jesus calls to us, we have to give a yes without strings attached. You see, Peter could have very nicely been like, yo, Jesus, hey, you're a really good teacher. You're actually good at that. You know what I'm good at? Fishing. It's what I've done my whole life. And uh, I know, like, normally you work with wood and stuff, and that's cool. And, like, I'm really grateful for the table that you made for me, but um, I'm really tired. Like, I've been out all night, like, all me and the bros, like, we're, like, toast. We need to get back. We're going to get a little rest. We're going to get a little rest. We're going to go fishing again tomorrow night, because that's, like, when the fish actually are kind of around. So, and, uh, but I'll tell you what, uh, since you wanted me to try to fish over here, I'll even come back here tomorrow. I'll give it a shot. But not tonight. Not today. Jesus could have, or, I mean, Peter could have easily said that, right? He could have said, yes, but. Yeah, I'll put it down, but I'm just, it's not here, Jesus, okay, because this doesn't make any sense, right? And I think we do the same thing, because sometimes Jesus asks us to do things that don't make a whole lot of sense. Oh, you want me to talk to that person? Well, Jesus, you're, you're a Jew from the first century, and, well, I'm an American in the 21st century, and I, look, I know that maybe sounded good for somebody back then, but not today. Like, we wouldn't ask that, or we wouldn't do that, or yes, but. When Jesus calls us to a life adventure, he says, hey, I need you to say yes without knowing how everything's going to work out. This was true for Jordan. You know, guys know Jordan, our worship leader? Uh, Jordan and I had worked together at a couple of different churches. Actually, worked together for about a decade. I knew Jordan really well. I trusted Jordan. Uh, I trust not only uh, his, the, the gifts that God has given him, th- those are phenomenal, um, but more than that, his heart. And so when God had called Brenda and I to plant a church, and we knew that he was sending us out, uh, I wanted to do it with a partner. I wanted to have somebody that, that we could do this together. And uh, Jordan and I have different gifts and abilities, but, but we overlap well, we mesh well, and we really trust each other. So I went to Jordan, and I said, hey man, would you and Dana pray about planting a church with, with Brenda and I. Now, uh, you got to understand where Jordan was at at the time. Uh, he was a worship leader at a large church in West Michigan. Uh, he had a big stage. 
Like, I don't mean, like, physically big stage. Like, he did. It was a huge stage. But I mean, like, the kind of notoriety that, like, would give him. The ability that people would kind of know uh, who he was and people would hear and it would open up doors for him and things like that. Uh, not only that, but um, the church had a, had, a, had a healthy budget. They had a budget bigger than maybe any budget will ever have. And uh, that meant that Jordan was actually able to uh, hire uh, his own team. So he had power and authority too. And he hired some great, great people. Folks that, some that he had known for a long time and that, that actually moved to come and join his team and they loved working with him and, 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 and for him and the church loved him. All kinds of security that was there and opportunities that were there. And, uh, and I said to him, I want you to pray, but you're going to have to say yes without even knowing where we're going. We didn't know where we were going to plant. We had no idea if God was going to call us to Grand Rapids. We were praying about four different cities. Some of those cities, Jordan probably was like, ooh, that would be cool. And some of those cities, Jordan was like, oh, please, Lord, no. But he had to say yes before he ever knew. The other thing was is uh, he had all kinds of help, volunteers, paid staff that would do all kinds of things. There was a full-time IT person. There was a full-time tech person. There was folks that helped out with all the different things. They didn't have to set things up every single week. As far as Jordan knew, we were going to be a church that was going to be setting up and tearing down every single Sunday, probably for the first five to ten years. That's kind of what we both expected. He was going to have to give that up. He had no idea what, that we were going to wind up in a building like this. And to this day, we don't have a full-time IT person. We don't even have a part-time IT person. We don't have a full-time tech. We don't even have a part-time tech person. Like, he has to do all these different things. Jordan had to say yes before he knew what it was all going to mean. But when Jordan gave that unqualified yes, he had the privilege of being able to see some of the amazing things that God's done. When God calls us to a life of adventure, we have to say yes without knowing where it's going to wind up. The second reality for us is this. The call to adventure will always cost you something. The call to adventure will always cost you something. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 of chapter 5, it says, So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Verse 27, or excuse me, 28. And Levi, Matthew, got up, left everything, and followed him. Now, for um, Peter, for Simon Peter, he, he was a career fisherman. This was the family business, okay? Uh, maybe some of you have come from a family that owns this business and everybody kind of works in it. And, and you kind of would understand what this would mean. The business is passed down to, to, the, to the kids so they can run it to provide for the family. And Peter has to take the boat, pull it up on shore and say, I'm leaving it to follow you. All the investment they had made in the boats and the nets and all the whatevers that they had for fishing, like all that was left behind. He'd have to explain to his folks, like, hey, I'm leaving this to do this. Uh, Levi, it was probably... I don't know if it was harder because, like, everything feels hard to the person that's in it, right? But in some ways, I think so because Levi was already an outcast. He was a Jew who had basically sold all of his Jewish brothers and sisters down the river to work for the Roman government as a tax collector. They couldn't stand him. He had basically become an outcast in society for the money, all right? Because if you were a tax collector, you had big bank, all right? Because you basically stole from your fellow Jews, and he would have had everything that he wanted, physically speaking, but was kind of an outcast within society, at least within the Jewish population, and he has to walk away from his tax booth, give it up, 
Now, just because he does that doesn't mean that all of his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters are going to be like, hey, we love you now. No, they still despised him. Like, you've been taking advantage of us for years, getting rich off of our backs. We can't stand you. He leaves that and he leaves the money. It's always going to cost you. Uh, If you think that you can follow Jesus and it not cost you much of anything your entire life, I believe you're probably not actually following Jesus. I want to ask you two potentially scary questions. The first one is this. Has my following Jesus ever cost me anything? And the second, has it ever cost me a lot? Um, I think that there's three things that as uh, Americans we value a ton. Uh, The first is our reputation. Has following Jesus ever cost you anything in your social standing? (laughs) Did anybody ever defriend you on Facebook or in life? Has anybody ever kind of mocked you or made fun of you because you followed Jesus? Has it ever cost you time? Serving in the church, taking care of people in your neighborhood, uh, caring for somebody at your school, going over and above to serve somebody. Has it ever cost you financial resources? I mean, those are the three things, right? Our social standing, our time, our money. I do think that there is a correlation between the depth of the cost and the depth of our following. It's not a perfect one-to-one. It's different for everybody, but there is a correlation there. There's also a causation of what your life looks like. Uh, There was a gal, her name was Elizabeth Howard. Uh, She started school at Wheaton College in 1945. Uh, She met a guy uh, named Jim Elliott, and she uh, was smitten with Jim, and Jim was smitten with her. She felt a calling to uh, be uh, to minister um, to, to folks that hadn't heard the gospel. So did he. Uh, he felt that God was calling him to go work with uh, an unreached people group down in South America um, that were known as the Aka Indians. Now, uh, they were neither Indian uh, nor uh, Aka. Aka was just a Quiche word that meant uh, naked savage. Um, they were actually known as being incredibly violent. Uh, the actual name of the tribe was the Weirani tribe. And Jim didn't feel like he could marry Elizabeth and bring her down into that environment, but he knew God was calling him down there. So they wrestled with their courtship even after graduation. And uh, about three years after they graduated, uh, they both wound up down uh, uh, in South America. They got married uh, at the Justice of Peace. And... Uh, started ministering together to reach this tribe that uh, no one had ever shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with. Uh, In fact, they were known, uh, they were called the Aukas um, because they were uh, savages. Now, not in like the sense of how how we often think. They were just literally super violent. Um, People that had come in and and kind of encroached on their lands or they thought had encroached on their lands uh, were killed. Uh, The actual um, tribe themselves Uh, had um, begun doing a number of killings within the tribe, and then there were revenge killings, and so the tribe had actually split into three factions that were living in different parts uh, of kind of their territory within the jungle where they lived. There was intense fear 
that they lived with all the time of being raided by one of these other factions. Uh, someone um, dying and being killed, uh, intense anger, and always was leading to violence. And, and so um, uh, Jim and four other uh, men decided they were going to start working to reach this group. They learned a little bit of the language from someone who had actually left the tribe. And uh, as a result, they started flying their plane uh, over uh, where the Weirani lived, and they would speak in their language um, some words that they had learned. And the people started uh, coming out when they would fly the plane over. And so then they, they, they figured out a really ingenious way to be able to lower gifts to them with an airplane. They would fly in concentric circles, and then they would let down a rope. And because of the way they were flying, the rope would actually stay pretty still, and they could lower it down and, and drop off gifts. And eventually the Weirani even started tying gifts to the end of that rope for them to take. So like we are like making huge inroads. This is amazing. So they finally realize after months of doing this that the people are ready for them to engage face to face. And so they land the plane, wait a couple of days. Uh, two women and a, and, a, and a man from the tribe come out. Uh, the guy is really interested in the airplane. They ask, they kind of like do the motion of, you know, flying. And the guy says, yes, they actually take homeboy up in the airplane, okay? Like if you lived in the jungle all your life, you'd never even seen an airplane. And then all of a sudden you're up in an airplane, how crazy. But he did it. Uh, they flew over um, his like little part of the village. He's hanging out the door yelling <laughs> at them. And they're like, all like, ah. So uh, they land, um, those three leave, uh, the, the, the five men are expecting uh, more to come uh, the next day. And they're so excited. They have radioed back. Uh, we think we're going to see them sometime this afternoon. And uh, it's true. They show up. There's ten uh, from the Weirani who come to meet them. And they start to walk out, wade out into the river. Uh, and that's when the first spear is thrown. And all five men are killed there in the jungle. When you want to follow Jesus, you have to give him an unqualified yes. And, and I promise you, it will cost something. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot's daughter, her name is Valerie, um, she was 10 months old when her dad was killed. Elizabeth was left as a widow, single mom, raising her 10-month-old daughter. Uh, Valerie um, said this in an interview uh, a few years back. She said, doing God's work doesn't mean that you're promised complete safety or guaranteed you'll see immediate results. But there is an immense assurance that you're following the Lord God Almighty whose plans are far greater than anything you could imagine. The call to adventure will always cost you something. Number three, the call to adventure will always be worth it. You're like, how can you share that story and then turn around and tell me that it's worth it? Elizabeth lost her husband, a man that she had been madly in love with. They had just had their first child together. Now she's left, single mom, trying to raise a child by herself. How are you going to tell me that the call to adventure is always worth it? doesn't sound like it's worth it. Flip Luke chapter 18, just a little bit after this, Luke chapter 18 from where we've been at in chapter 5. I'll tell you one other story. Uh, there is a man who is uh, pretty wealthy, he's young, he's religious, he's 
He comes to Jesus, and he wants to know how he can have uh, eternal life, okay? And eternal life is not something that starts when you die. Eternal life is something that starts when you follow God. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, and he uses the word good, which is interesting, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. I was like, who do you really think I am? You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shouldn't murder. You shall not steal. Don't give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. Jesus isn't listing uh, all of the commandments. He's just kind of giving a smattering of the commandments. Okay, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. He doesn't even list them all. He's like, you know the commandments. Dude says in verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He's religious. He knows all the stuff. He's dotted all the I's. He's crossed all the T's. Done all the things he's supposed to do. He's like, yo, I'm good. So he's like, so, so I'm good, right, Jesus? Like, I got it. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. And I just imagine Jesus like had like this pregnant pause right there, right? You still lack one thing. Pregnant pause. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Other passages says the man went away sad because he was very wealthy. In other words, Jesus gives him a call to adventure, and the man instead says no. Yeah, you ever read uh, one of those choose-your-own-adventure novels? Yeah? Like when I was a kid, those were like the bomb. I remember being in like fifth grade, and our teacher would read us one of those, and then the whole class had to decide which one we're going to choose. Do you go up the mountain, or do you go into the cave? Into the cave! Go into the cave! And then she turns over to page 88, and you're like, you went into the cave, and there's a bear, and you died. Oh, no! Like, the adventure's over, right? Like, it matters how you choose. Look, following Jesus is a choose-your-own-adventure. You can say yes, or you can say no. When Jesus comes, and he says, hey, rich dude, that you've been religious, you've done all the right things, but sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. It's going to cost you something. And the dude goes away. He chooses no. That seems like a really big ask Jesus is making. That gets back to the question is, do I trust the person who's asking me? Do I actually think that they have my best interest in mind? See, I can promise you, whatever that rich young ruler would have given up, he would have gained so much more. Now, I'm not saying he would have been richer at the end of his life than he was at that moment. I'm simply saying that Jesus always knows how to reward us. In fact, he promises that. If we continue reading in the story, Jesus says this. He says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And that's true, man. And we're rich. Like Americans, like it or not, we are richer than the vast majority of the rest of the world. And that is one of the hardest things for us to get beyond because we have a hard time wanting to give Jesus control of our riches. I do. Man, I'd probably wrestle with that one more than anything else. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Like, well, that's impossible. A camel, big old camel, can't go through the eye of a needle. 
In fact, they actually say that those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? How can anybody do that than Jesus? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And otherwise, look, if I call you to do something, I'm going to be there with you to help you actually do it. Then Peter, the same dude that left his boat and his nets to follow Jesus, says this. He says, we have left all we had to follow you. In other words, yo, what about us, Jesus? We, we did it. We said yes to the adventure, not knowing what it was going to mean, knowing it was going to cost us something. Jesus says, truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, look, you can't outgive me. You can't outgive me. I promise you, you can't outgive me. Yeah, the crazy thing about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot's story is uh, Elizabeth takes her husband home in a casket back to America and she buries him. And a few months later, she and some of the other widowed spouses of those men got on a plane and flew back to South America and went back to that tribe with their children and continued to love the tribe and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over years of building relationship and learning the language and sharing, they were able to not only share the gospel of Jesus, but see many of the Wayarani actually come to salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ. Asking Jesus to forgive them. And one of the women who went back was the wife of the pilot. Her son wound up knowing the man who killed his father. He was one of the tribesmen. His name was Min Minkaye, I think is how you say it. Minkaye is now called grandfather by that kid's children. Uh, there's a whole lot more I could tell you about what God has done and how God, through the gospel of Jesus, has transformed that tribe into a people who are afraid of each other and vengeance-filled their lives. Violence was a constant threat to a people who are loving and caring and generous. God's done something amazing. But one of the most powerful things that I think we learned from this story is actually something that Jim Elliot had written in his journal before he was killed. He said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Revelation 22, 12, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. Look, you'll never outgive God. And when God comes to you and invites you into a life of adventure, I promise you, you're going to have to say yes without knowing what that life's going to fully look like. And I also promise you, it's going to cost you something. In fact, the greater the call, the greater the cost. Every single time, I guarantee it. But I also promise you, it's always worth it, 100% always worth it. And I want us to be a church filled with people who are willing to fall for adventure. Because if you'll do that, then our church is not only going to grow, not because we want to be big, but because we want to see more people's lives transformed. We actually believe Jesus transforms our lives and following him is actually best. I sit up here and preach, not because it's some job that I have, it's because Jesus actually did this for me and I can't do anything else.
And I want us to live like that. And I want more people to experience that. I'm so proud of this church because I know that there's folks sitting in here that have actually experienced that because a friend invited them and they had some stuff going on in their lives and they needed a rescue and Jesus has entered in. And it doesn't mean things are perfect. It doesn't even mean things are easy. But it does mean things are better. And they would stand up here and tell you right now, yes, it's better. Jesus does that for us and Not only that, but we need to be a church that's willing to say, hey, you know what? Whatever God calls me to, man, I'm in. It's a yes. So some of you, there's something God's been asking you to do, and today you need to say yes. I don't even know what it is, but you do. You know right now. Some of you, you need to say yes to leaving TLC to help us plant another church in a couple of years. You need to say yes now before it gets hard, before you get that promotion and you're making all that money and you just bought that house and you're like, oh, I can't leave now. And Jesus is like, no, you need to say yes to me now. Some of you, you need to say yes to gener- uh, greater generosity so that we can actually plant a church in two years. Some of you, you need to say yes to starting to integrate your faith into your vocation where you don't just act one way on Sunday and go to work and not think that Jesus cares about how you do what you do. Some of you, you actually need to pull out that local card that we gave you last week and write down a couple more names of some co-workers or some friends or some neighbors or some family members and start praying for them and inviting them. Some of you, you need to get off the fence and actually give your life to Jesus because you've been bouncing around for a long time thinking maybe someday I probably will, maybe I'm going to. Make that today. Just tell him right now. Say, God, I'm in. I'm in. I believe. Come into my life. Start doing something different. The call to adventure will always cost you something and you have to say yes without knowing the end, but I promise you it's worth it. I'm living proof. And I could point out so many other people that right now would be like, amen. Church, let's get it together. Let's say yes. Jesus, we want to say yes to you because we know that you're worth it. And God, you're calling. Right now, you're calling to some folks. God, help them to say yes. Give them the guts to say yes. Jesus, you don't always make my life easier, but you have absolutely made my life better. I'm convinced of that truth because you proved it to me. You proved it to me on the cross. You proved it to me on Easter Sunday when you rose back to life. You prove it to me time and time again with your grace and your forgiveness and your blessings and your kindness. You prove it to me with your presence that you are with me in good times and bad. Thank you, Jesus. Let us be a people who say yes to you for your name, for your glory. Amen.